0: In service, with Stefan Ozich. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Living in Service podcast. It is a honour and pleasure to be bringing to you another amazing, fascinating, engaging and very, very enlightening conversation. This episode was featuring a very, very adventurous that's probably the best word I could give him adventurous man. Uh, he literally is probably one of the most intentional humans I've ever met. Uh, but before we get into it, I'd just like to give a quick little shout out to the sponsor, So Well, which is my coaching services. If you're wondering what So Well is, basically a holistic coaching provider where I aim to work with athletes in particular or people that wanting to refine and hone in on certain areas in their life but specifically athletic endeavors uh, any running races trail races marathons 10ks 5ks 2ks if you're that way inclined Um, basically for any athlete that's wanting to get that next step and take their whole approach and how they're approaching their sports and athletes in a more Grounded and holistic way. Uh, we can discuss further, and if you wish to explore further, uh, you can check this out via the website link, which will be in the show notes. Uh, but to the show, um, I'd like to basically set the stage on this guy, uh, Akshay Nanavanti. He is about to set out on literally one of the most isolating and inhospitable tasks in human history and i'm not being hyperbolic here Uh, this man is setting out to perform the first unsupported crossing of antarctica from coast to coast in one push with no dogs no crew alone it's looking like it's going to take him around 110 111 days not so sure how exact that Timeline is, but upon listening to the conversation, you will find out that Akshay has got it pretty down packed to a T, to the most granular and minute detail. Uh, we really get to have the chance to explore the whole impetus for sitting out on such a task, and what brought it um himself to come to this position to even want to set out on such an adventure. We get to explore the ideas of fear embracing suffering his experiences in the military his experiences ultra running and raising money um, his perception on pain and discomfort and we delve deeper into his philosophies and what he dubs the worthy struggle Uh, this conversation was yeah it's it was a doozy and i was just so thrilled to be able to have the opportunity to explore and discuss and talk with akshay and I'm sure he will be, um, yeah, well deep into his training, as he touched on in the conversation, and will be definitely tuning back in once the task is complete. Um, but yeah, anyway, thank you so much for your time, and hope you enjoy. Now to the show. Speak soon. It's all all coming together now. Awesome, awesome, it's awesome to finally meet you, Akshay.
1: Likewise, man. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah. Firstly, just how, how are you going anyway in preparation for everything?
1: All good, man. Just all good, man. Just back kind I setting up my systems and my operations to kind of get into the flow. I'll be doing full-time training for the next four months till the crossing.
0: Mm. So
1: uh, it's just going to be a full, yeah, full-time gig morning till night, uh, mind, body, spirit training. So I'm just getting the systems in order to kind of follow the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so picking up my groceries i just got in from india like a day and a half ago so getting that up and tomorrow i start wow wow yes, so
0: you've been back home for how long since your last expedition
1: uh, i was i was back home for a week and a week and a half before i left for india i had a couple of speaking gigs out here so i came here did some speaking gigs after this was after the arctic then went to india for a couple of weeks and now back here and now i'm staying put pretty much until the crossing yeah just focusing a lot a lot of a lot of a lot of training it's going to be an intense few months and then even more intense once I get out onto the ice
0: Mm, yeah so I'd love I'd love to basically just start it off then actually firstly um yeah thank you so much for doing this it's a lot and um I came across you I was listening to Zach uh Zach Bitter's podcast had that conversation with uh, you and that other professor basically breaking down your nutrition Um, but it was just it was kind of because Zach's podcast obviously focused on performance but it was just so glimmed over as to how the attempt of what you're going to achieve was just like nothing anyone's ever achieved and I just couldn't help but think I just would love to learn more and then obviously I've started doing these podcasts and then that's where I thought of you instantly. So yeah, it's an honor, Akshay. So thank you.
1: Absolutely, brother. Pleasure to be here, man.
0: Well, um, to start, I really want to go into, I want to explore your story, of course, and how it is you've come to be the manifest Akshay we see here today, presently. But really, I'd like to really start off with um, this idea of fear I'd love you to go deep into that. And um, we've released this book, which... I've um, actually gone to order, but I unfortunately yeah, ran out of time because I would have liked to have coincided with the conversation, but that, we'll leave that for another day. Essentially, I'd like you to break down fearvana, and from there we can kind of start to explore
1: more. Sounds good. The essence of fearvana is the, is the idea that these two seemingly contradictory notions, right, fear and nirvana, they're often flamed, framed as opposites, that they're not only complementary, but they, they they must coexist, that they can and they must coexist, that fear is not the antithesis of nirvana, fear is the access point to it. So I wrote it to combat this demonization of not just fear, but anything under this umbrella of struggle. You know, we, we often say that there's these negative, quote unquote, negative emotions, like fear, stress, anxiety, guilt, sadness, but they're not negative. These are just emotions. They're very valid parts of the human experience. And when leveraged, they can actually be the greatest sources of strength and power. So the essence of it is to help people transform their fear, their struggles, their pain, their suffering into something beautiful, because that is the single most important skill to master if you want to live a life of greater meaning and fulfillment because once you once you're able to embrace suffering, embrace fear, embrace struggle, then it doesn't matter whether life punches you in the face or you're seeking a meaningful challenge, you'll be able to find bliss in the entire journey right whether it's a high or a low, you'll be able to find beauty on uh, in that whole process. So the whole the whole premise of Firvana is to help people fall in love with suffering, to embrace their fears in order to find live and love, what I call your worthy struggle. That is your path in life. your I don't like to use the word passion. Passion is good, obviously, but it conveys the notion that if you follow your passion, every day will feel great and it's sunshine and rainbows and unicorns. And it's not, right? It's not. I love what I do, but it has fucking work and it's brutal. So I call it your worthy struggle. And that's what Fearvana is designed to do is help people Im- transform that suffering and use it and find the beauty in it so they can find, live and love their path.
0: Mm. how did you come to this wisdom because i imagine you wouldn't have just read this in some book it sounds like this has to be a very experiential process for you to enjoy absolutely absolutely
1: lives. yeah it's, you know, the, the journey that led me to Firvana. um when i moved to the u.s at the age of 13 i was born in india I lived in india singapore moved to the u.s soon after moving there at about 15 or 16 got very heavily into drugs and alcohol used to cut myself Burn myself, lost two friends to addiction, was heading down that path myself until one day when I saw the movie Black Hawk Down. And that movie planted a seed that changed my life forever. It triggered something in me to question this worthless, meaningless, selfish, purposeless existence I was living at the time and to do something more valuable with this life that I've been gifted. And uh, almost overnight, I stopped doing drugs decided to join the Marines. It took me about a year and a half to get in because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp so I had to kind of fight my way into the Marines. And in the Marines I first started to learn the beauty of suffering. Right. Marine Corps training is very, very hard. I suffered I struggled I, I experienced a lot of adversity a lot of fear a lot of stress. And I started to find the beauty in it because transcending that is what allowed me to tap into something in the human soul that you can't access without suffering, right? The strength and the power that we all have within that limitless capacity of the human spirit. And so after coming out of the Marine Corps training is when I got into every outdoor sport you can think of. Cause I used to be scared of everything like heights, open water, uh, tight spaces. So after the Marines, I started confronting those fears and systematically engaging them. I went rock climbing, mountain climbing, cave diving, scuba diving, ice diving, like skydiving. I mean, you name it, caving every tight, every fear I was systematically confronting through this playground in nature. And, um, that's what at the time, obviously I wasn't fully aware of it, but that was looking back was, the birth of everything that is who I am today, as well as the essence of fear of But then in 2007, I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry non-commissioned officer in the Marines, where one of my jobs was to walk in front of our vehicles looking for bombs before they could be used to kill my fellow Marines and I. So needless to say, a dangerous and scary job. Uh, so once again, through all this life experience, learn to master my own relationship to fear, as well as live for something greater than myself. You know, because in the Marines your well-being is not important. What matters is the men and the mission. And it's it's profoundly beautiful to live in a world like that, where the good of the group matters more than your well-being. But after coming back from Iraq, I survived. I uh, struggled a lot, lost a friend out there, struggled with PTSD, with depression, survivor's guilt, was drinking heavily, heavily, you know. And after five days of binge drinking once, I woke up and I was seconds away from taking a knife and slitting my wrists. And that was the the, the moment that I started my very long, hard, brutal, rocky climb out of that abyss, and it was climbing out of that abyss, going into a lot of research into neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, doing that inner work to find and face and engage my own demons and ultimately to rise above them is what led me to fear and to realization that even for me, for example, you know, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, but I realized that post-traumatic stress does not mean post-traumatic stress disorder. Just adding that word disorder completely changes the relationship to it. You know, for example, I struggled struggle with loud noises when I came back from war and everybody said that, you know, I was, that's a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's not a disorder. That's a very normal human response to seven months in a place where loud noises meant death. So inevitably I was more hypervigilant. You know, I struggled with survivor's guilt because I lost a friend in the war and everybody, therapists, friends, family, don't feel guilty, right? It's not your fault. And I get it. I mean, it's not my fault. Bullets fly where they fly, and war can't control it. But the fact of the matter is the guilt was not the problem. You know, we frame guilt as another quote unquote negative emotion, but guilt was just an expression of love. It was an expression of love for my brother. And so instead of demonizing the guilt, I realized that this is not a problem. It's not a disorder. It's what I do with the guilt that matters. It's my relationship to it. So for example, what I did for a long time is I put a picture of my friend that I lost in the war and it said, this should have been you earn this life. My guilt became my ally. So I realized that post-traumatic stress is not a problem. It's what we do with it. Fear is not the problem. It's what we do with it. And that's what led to Fearvana and ultimately now to my own expression of it as an adventurer playing on the most hostile, unforgiving and savage environments on the planet, like the Arctic where I just was at and the Antarctic and many other places like that.
0: There's so much to unpack unpack the Akshay and One thing that stands out so much is is what I'm hearing from you, and this is what I'm hearing from your whole story, is this idea that as soon as you're confronting something where there's there's discomfort and rigidity and there's an avoidance factor from the mind trying to steer far away from that, you're the one that's realized this by naturally, it seems, to lean into that and stare into that. And that process it seemed to have been stemmed from that moment where you're in that um, bad environment with your friend and you watch that Black Hawk down. It seems like that right there, that little impetus to want to take that step seemed to have planted that seed. So I want to try explore that a bit more as to what do you think that was in that moment that stemmed that inspiration when you got, when you watched Black Hawk down and that kind of led on this path
1: ultimately. Where do you think that was? What do you think that was? You know, for me, the trigger in that movie, because before this, I hadn't really know suffering. My parents weren't wealth, extremely wealthy at the time. They were middle class, uh, lived a great life. I had great parents, wasn't like a traumatic childhood or anything that drove me into drugs. I couldn't have asked for a better life. You know, everywhere we moved, they they worked on putting me in the best schools and moved around a lot. That was the only mild challenge, but not a real suffering, right? So what triggered what that change for me was in that scene. And have you seen Black Hawk Down? Yes, but a long time ago. long time ago. Yeah, it's an older movie now. So, but there's a scene where there these two Delta snipers, Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, they're in a chopper, you know, way up in the sky, and they see that the second Black Hawk had crashed. And they volunteer to go on the ground, just two people, knowing that hundreds of armed enemy personnel are heading their way, knowing that they have no idea when reinforcements would arrive because the other guys were going through their own battle, couldn't get to them. And they volunteered to go set up a defensive perimeter for that Black Hawk and Michael Durant, who was in the chopper, in the crash chopper. They both died protecting him. And Michael Duran is still alive today because of what they did. And they received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award for valor in the U.S. military, posthumously, of course, for what they did. But that level of courage, that level of self-sacrifice, of compassion, I mean, it's awe-inspiring, you know, and war is this experience that reveals the very extremes of the human condition it shows you it's absolute worst of humanity and the horrific shit we do to each other but it also shows you people like gary gordon randy sugar and many 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 others who sacrifice their very lives for another and there was something that drew me into to tapping into that extremes of the human condition especially that that self-sacrifice to experience that to see that and to also stop living a worthless life that I was living at the time, you know, so that was the, the, the impetus to get to, to go join the Marines was first just to, 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 because once I watched the movie, I read the book and read every book I could find on military and combat. And ultimately the essence of it was like Shakespeare said, you know, the um, no, there is no greater love than he who sheds his blood for me. Right. So, To experience that and to live for something greater than myself, separate from all the politics of the war, a lot of bullshit shouldn't have gone in Iraq, God knows I know all that stuff. But on the ground, we were doing something good, we were serving for each other, we wanted to help uh, the people out there who have gone through hell. And it was the draw initially was just to, for that to live for something bigger and to live in a group in a world where the, the your men and your mission are more important than you. And of course, there's times where you fucking hate it because you're tired and you don't want to go on a mission. But overall, it's a profoundly powerful and beautiful experience. And that was the draw. And then that led me to also finding the beauty and suffering and struggle and the hardship of military training. And then looking for other ways to play on that edge as well and to continue keep exploring through those through those means. But that initial draw was just in pure awe of men like Gary Gordon, Randy Sugar, and so many others who put everything on the line for something and someone else.
0: Mm, wow. Well, it's amazing. Actually, so, so I imagine I'm just, I'm projecting here somewhat, but in the path there, you would have had that moment of awakening, you could say, but the path there would have been so rocky and there would have been so much resistance for your internal kind of situations, your internal conditions having to confront that. So how did that look the journey to kind of get from realizing in that moment, watching black Hawk down to then decide to join the military to then progressively go into a willingness yeah. to go outside and confront these fears and do things that were going deep in your core that you were like nah i don't like that how did that process look for you in that transition
1: you know uh, once i made the decision to go in as i said it took me a year and a half to just to get in because of this blood disorder i i kept out to see multiple hematologists blood doctors Two doctors told me that boot camp would kill me, so they didn't give me a letter to go in. Went and saw a third doctor who finally gave me the approval. Then I went to the Marines, and I had to fight my way in because I have this blood disorder. I'm flat-footed. Uh, I have scoliosis. So all of these were disqualifying conditions, but this was a post-9-11 world. So here's a young kid who wants to go to Marine Corps infantry. They were f- eventually found a way. But point is to say that once you have that conviction, and that was my conviction, that this is who I will be, that was it. You know, That was it. You're you're done. Like that's who I got to be. I'm gonna fight my way, do whatever the fuck it takes to get my way in. And when I got in, like Marine Corps boot camp training, initially was really hard. There were days I'm like, fuck, what did I get myself into? You know. But <laughs> but you start to you once you once you start playing on those edges. And you open the doors into the human soul that only are accessed through suffering, because suffering is the means; it's not the purpose for why I do all these things. the The purpose is the treasure on the other side, right? You have to fight the dragon to get the treasure. So the dragon is just the is just the the, the thing that allows you to access the treasure. So once I saw something within myself to to fight the struggle and to seeing it other, going through it with other people, right? In Marine Corps training, for example, in boot camp, when somebody did something wrong. Everybody would get punished for it, right? So you you live, you suffer together, you bleed together, you're struggling together. And there's, that, that to me is the essence of what makes humanity, defines humanity at its finest, right? Our willingness, our ability to self-sacrifice for something and someone else. And so you experience that and then you find even within yourself your your courage because you cannot know your strength without struggle. You can't have courage unless there's fear. It makes no courage to sit on a couch. It take, You can only have courage when there's fear. And you cannot know the, the limitlessness of your own power without pain. So accessing all these things, the fear, the struggle, the pain, allowed me to tap into my power, my strength, my courage. And that was beautiful to experience. So I was hooked. And I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to keep going deeper. And that's what continues to drive me this to this day is want to continue to explore that want to continue. I mean, until the day we die, there's always more growth to be had. There's always more service to be done. There's always more life to be experienced. There's always more new places to go into the soul, you know, and you don't know all of us. We don't know. I don't know what I don't know. And the only way to start knowing that is to go to even know what I don't know is to go play in realms so far outside my current realm of reality of the understanding of reality. So that drive to explore, which I think is so innate in who we are. I mean, young kids, you're always they're curious and they're always exploring the world around them, right? And that gets stifled when at a young age, when don't do that, don't do that, and don't do that. You know, kids and adults are like, and not intentionally often, it's just the nature of the world, but stifling. And I think when you unleash that spirit to explore, which I think is so inherent to the human condition. And it's not even just exploring without, it's ultimately exploring within, right? Like all my journeys without, all my journeys in the Arctic are ultimately why I love nature so much is because nature is a true mirror to the, to the soul. Like when nature acts out of hostility, it's not acting out of malice. There's no intent to it, right? There's not an intention. It just is. And the isness of nature, because it just is, because there's no malice. There's no intent. There's no consciousness. There's no uh, uh, um, choice to it. It just is. That isness ultimately then allows you to reflect on yourself. So that mirror is a beautiful vehicle to tap into something, not just within myself, but into the human spirit. And it's, I think like what better way to experience life than to go there and to find that and to see that. And I think that's what makes us alive. That's what, I mean, if you look at the hierarchy of needs by Abraham Maslow, self-actualization is that, you know, but that happens. Suffering is the vehicle for self-transcendence. Like through suffering, you learn how to transcend it. And as Viktor Frankl said, self-actualization is the side effect of self-transcendence. So all these journeys and then giving the wisdom that I gained from these voyages on the edge back to others is, I think, the very essence of what makes life worth living and i get to experience awe at its highest levels through these journeys
0: in this process of um, self-realization you could say and you living this process was there any books that you or mentors that you started to acquire that happened to correlate and align with these values and these philosophies or was it kind of a pure process of you kind of putting your feet to ground and going on this journey Was there tools that stood out to you? Was there any philosophy, religions? Was there any faiths, spiritual practices that happened to correlate? Because I'm imagining that in this process of this awakening, you could say that there would be, you'll be trying to find your footing somewhat. You'll be in it, you're in the thick of it. Like when you said you're in um, boot camp, you're like, what the fuck am I doing here? But you're in it, you're in the process. Yet, was there people that, when you're in those moments, say, of doubt or oh, this isn't really yet that you'll turn to to kind of act as a bit of a reminder, leverage.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot along the way, I remember reading Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is an absolute classic. And I know it's often shared a lot, but, but it's really fucking good. So there's a reason for it. That book I read for the first time in Iraq, actually, and it helped guide me through some challenging moments out there. And I mean, Victor Frankl and Carl Jung are probably two of the people I quote the most in my work, but so many others along the way, you know, that, that helped guide me and, and those are invaluable, but ultimately you have to go like, I cannot stress this enough because often like whether it's reading any book, Victor Frankl's book, reading fear of Honor, listening to a podcast, you know, going to a speaking event, going to a seminar, all those things are great. They can provide uh, aha moments, but you have to step into the arena to really, to, to discover those true answers. So those were doorways, but then I went to going to war with myself was me walking through those doorways, you know, so they provided insights, Uh, uh, tools to access new, new, new awakenings, but I had to go to war with myself to ultimately ingrain them and to embed them into my spirit, to make them from a conceptual understanding to a visceral knowing to a knowing that is now, me a part of me that is the essence of me as opposed to just a thought and an understanding because a conceptual understanding is very different than a visceral knowing you know conceptual understanding is we read a book we listen to podcasts oh that makes sense like somebody can hear me and be like oh okay i get it he's making sense but it's very different to say all right embracing suffering i get why it makes sense versus then actually embracing suffering two different things right it's it's easy to hear it be like that makes sense versus then actually suffering and then embracing it so as an example but whatever whatever knowledge you want to put under that umbrella the point is you can get the knowledge you can get that 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 insight but you have to step into the arena to really ingrain that insight and so those provided just doorways for me then help walk through
0: you're you're essentially your own walking talking visceral experience of this idea of Fivana. you 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 are Absolutely. yeah you are the The professor, but you're also the person hypothesizing, you're also the person reaching to the conclusion. And I think that's one of the most purest ways to exist. And even me for myself, as I'm on this journey, I see that there's only so much resources and so much inspiration, so much ideas and philosophies. But if you aren't the one that's the practitioner, you aren't the one that's waking up every morning, 5 a.m., 4 a.m., 3 a.m., to go in, to meditate, to pray, to go do your training, to confront or to study, to do the work, none of that stuff you're reading is going to have any practicality to you and your experience.
1: Absolutely. And that's that's the thing, exactly what you're saying. You have to go to war. You know, people, like one of my biggest beefs with the personal development industry is this overwhelming focus on, quote unquote, overcoming your limiting beliefs. It's it's not about overcoming your limiting beliefs, because the, the the premise, the inherent premise there when you say overcome your limiting beliefs is attaching your reality to your to your thoughts as real. But we're not our thoughts. We're not our feelings, we're not our experiences, right? We are the thinker of our thoughts, the feeler of our feelings, and the experiencer of our experiences. There's the I mean, we we all know our thoughts and feelings are neurotic. They change, they go crazy, they're all the time, they're they're shifting. If that's the essence of who we are, we'd all be a neurotic mess. So when, when you say we have to overcome our limiting beliefs, it's implying that my inherent my, my belief is who I am. But you don't have to listen to that shit. Instead of that, go to war and belief is built on the battlefield. Belief is built on the battlefield, right? I can't tell you how many times I have failed at doing something hard, but then I keep stepping into the arena and then I push harder and I push harder. And that's where that self belief is built, not sitting there trying to like stillness is valuable. I'm not demonizing stillness. Stillness is incredibly valuable. That's why I do things like you, I think you've know, seen, I spent 10 days in complete darkness and isolation and did another time for seven right. days. Yeah, happy to delve into that too. So stillness has immense value. But the point is to say you have to put yourself into the arena. To build and create a new self, it doesn't happen just pondering it, you know.
0: So, to kind of put into like layman terms for a person listening that is on this fence, they are on this awareness that they do want to be better, but they're just not doing it. They're not. They're not doing that thing. Like they're they're hearing your words now, and they are expressively like it resonates with them. It's still that thing. Like for that person, what 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 what's what's even just the, the first moment? Is it just a decision? You say the limiting beliefs. So you're transcending the belief because you're the one that's essentially stating that you are what it is that you're thinking, which is a belief when really you have basically just got to sit back and kind of come to a place of knowing and that, nah, I know there's more. Is, is, it, is, that, is that a starting point for that person?
1: Where, where the is starting it? point is take some action. Like, Go sit in a cold tub for 30 fucking seconds. Do something. Like the problem is this inherent, like there's a, you know, there, you probably heard that term, the seminar junkie. Going to seminar after seminar after seminar or doing like, and I'm not demonizing seminars or the ayahuasca journeys, but I know people who just go to ayahuasca journeys after ayahuasca journey after ayahuasca journey. And I know it can feel rough or whatever, the, but you're, you you have the integration beyond that. It feels really good to do a seminar. A fucking monkey can like make somebody go to a seminar and feel really good in the moment. But it's not about that shit. Like go learn some stuff, but you have to do the hard thing you know, stop waiting to feel confident. That's another thing. Oh, I have to go to more seminars or read more books before I'm ready. You're never going to be ready, quote unquote. The confidence is the result of action, not the fuel for action. Don't wait to feel confident to do do the hard thing. You have to go to war with yourself. And nothing about that is comfortable. Nothing about that. The nature of pain is that it's fucking painful. The nature of suffering is that you will suffer. But you have to step into that battlefield. So to do something small, I didn't get it. To, I didn't get to where I'm at like overnight. I used to be terrified of heights, terrified of tight spaces. I remember my mom telling me when I was a kid. I was so scared of Ferris wheels. Forget about even a roller coaster. Even a Ferris wheel scared me. So I didn't get to the point that I now do all the crazy shit I do in training for a 110 day solo journey across Antarctica overnight. So you step into that ladder of risk one step at a time. You know, work your way up. Go one step into it. Just take one step and you have to feel a little bit of fear. If you're not feeling fear, you're not stepping hard enough, right? It takes, for me, I'm not going to feel fear doing things that now I've done so much. If I go, let's say, rock climbing on a decent rock climb route or whatever, because I've done a lot of it, right? So you ha- you once you, wherever you're at, it's not about a right, wrong, good, bad. We all start somewhere. Push that, push your edge a little bit. You're going to feel fear. You're going to feel off balance. And when you do stop judging it, the biggest problem is not the emotion. It's the judgment we have around the emotion. Like I worked with this one client who said to, said to me, he was, he was flying to Iceland on his own just for a vacation. It was first time to go on a vacation on his own. And he was terrified, right? And he was, and he kept saying to me, like he was beating himself up, like, what's wrong with me? Why am I scared? He was like looking at all the crazy shit I do and be like, you know, you do all this crazy stuff. I shouldn't be scared that I'm going to Iceland on my own. And the problem was not his fear. It was the judgment he had around himself off that fear. The reason I don't get scared going on a vacation on my own is because I've done it a lot. Not because I'm more brave. It's because my brain says this thing is not scary because I have references to show that it's not scary. His brain did not have those references because it had not done it before. And therefore, it took courage on his part to step into that fear. It takes no courage for me to go on a vacation on my own, right? A nice, chill vacation because I've done it I, and, and there's no fear. It took courage for him to step into that fear and do it. So the problem is not when the fear, when the anxiety, when the stress, whatever the emotion, when it shows up, that is not the problem. The, 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 judgment you have around yourself for it. And we all do this, right? I worked with another client who had anxiety every time he sat down to write and work on his book. So he would, he would beat himself up. I shouldn't feel anxious. What's wrong with me. I'm a piece of shit. All that self dialogue. Instead of just pause, got it. My brain's experiencing a bit of fear. I'm feeling a bit of fear. I'm feeling a bit of anxiety. And simply noticing it, simply pausing, simply labeling it, neuroscience has shown that reduces activity in the emotional parts of the brain and increases activity in the parts of the brain related to focus and awareness. So it creates that space between the emotion and you as the feeler of that emotion, you as the feeler of that feeling. And once you create that space, now you can do something. So I still get scared doing all the shit I do. Uh, People think often, I can't tell you how many people have said you're fearless. I'm far... I'm fearless. I get fucking terrified doing the things that I do. I was terrified before going into darkness, before going to the Arctic, before going to Antarctica. I get scared like going on a date. That shit terrifies me. But the thing is, I don't care when the fear is there because I'm very acclimatized now to being with the fear. That's the thing. It's not about whether the fear is there or not. It's about your judgment of it. Let it show up, be with it, and then go step into it. Step into it one step at a time, one inch at a time.
0: A big part of this whole thing, is, is you touched on it previously, is that we've become so conditioned to be thinking that we, the thinker, we, the perceiver, we, the one that has emotions, we, the one that are thinking about how our day-to-day goes, we think that is us when really we are merely the observer. That's, That's ultimately what we are. We're in this vessel, yet we have these abilities and capacities when our brain, these functions, but we've become so conditioned and so brought up to think that everything that comes up, the fear, the anxiety, the depression, the lust, everything, the excitement that we become so attached to it. And then this is where the inverse is true when I'm on this, as I'm on this journey myself, and no doubt that you've come to this, Akshay, is that we're so quick to steer away from fear and anxiety, but as soon as it's joyful and exciting, we cling on to it. We want to hold on to it. So how is that something even for you, for your client practice? How is that something you've helped people to kind of better navigate through? Because the idea is ultimately impermanence as as Buddha speaks a lot about equanimity. Equanimity is the word he always brings up. It's keeping a balanced state of mind no matter the circumstances ultimately. And when there's that ultimate joy and excitement that people always have and always cling clinging to, like I want to be happy, that's the purpose of life. Happiness, happiness. How the fuck is that sustainable? How are you ever going to know what um, a sour grape tastes like when you get punched in the face? How are you going to know what not being punched in the face is like? So how is that something that you're through your process, you've utilized tools and through your coaching clients where you've told them to kind of better confront that idea too with a clinging to happiness, clinging to the joy, clinging to yeah. the warmth?
1: You know, at first, it's reframing your whole mindset around it, because to your point, I mean, the pursuit of happiness is literally written in the in in the American uh, Bill of Rights, right? Like, it's so embedded into the ideals that we should be pursuing happiness, which is a deeply flawed concept, because to exactly your point, happiness is very ephemeral, right? It's a very, it's very fleeting. Uh, but true happiness, if you want to look at a true fulfillment, is not the elimination of sadness. It's the ability to find the gift in sadness. So first, it's reframing your mindset to recognize that happiness is not the pursuit. Happiness is a side effect of pursuing a life of meaning, pursuing your worthy struggle. As I said, right, pursuing that worthy struggle, and you'll experience awe on that journey, and happiness will result as a side effect on that. So reframing your very mindset about the nature of suffering, the nature of happiness, the nature of pain, and recognizing that. Contrast is what gives life its flavor. You need sadness to know happiness. You need darkness to know light. You can't have a summit without a valley. You can't have a high without a low, right? You need contrast to give life its flavor. And the thing that scares so many people is the unwillingness to leap out into the unknown for the fear that I might fall and experience a great deal of pain. So that fear, if the unwillingness to experience that pain prevents them from experiencing true pleasure, which is why, as Henry Thoreau said, that most men and most people live lives of quiet desperation. So we stay in this static numbness because we're so scared to leave. So first it's reframing that mindset, right? Around what the nature of suffering is combating, like allowing yourself to stop demonizing fear, demonizing struggle, demonizing quote unquote bad emotions, the, the, recognizing that there are no bad emotions. There are no good emotions. There are no bad experiences. There are no good experiences. There's just emotions. There's just experiences. It's entirely up to us to decide what we do with them. Some feel better, some feel more challenging, but the bad or good label is entirely a construct of how we approach it. Once you reframe your mindset around it, now you can start saying, got it. Okay, I get it, that makes sense. And when you hear this, everybody kind of gets it. Like conceptually, everybody, like I've never shared this with a podcast, with a public speaking event, or with a person that like, that makes sense, right? Like with That hasn't said that makes sense. They all get it conceptually. Conceptually, got it, that makes sense. Now you got to experience it. You know as i said i didn't know real suffering when i went to boot camp as a kid when i went to boot camp i experienced it and i found the beauty in transcending it so once you once you go there you will want to keep going there. Then you will start recognizing it viscerally. Oh, got it, right? Like I saw something when I played on that edge. I saw that when I experiencing deeper pain, I experience greater pleasure, right? You open the door, you're opening the door, not just to like pleasure or pain, you're opening the door to experiencing all the depth and range that life has to offer. And life is fucking grand, man. This adventure is absolutely beautiful, but you have to open those doors to, to pain if you really want to experience pleasure, right? You have to experience and explore the depths of the abyss if you want to know the heights of awe. And awe, I think, is ultimately what we're seeking, right? Joseph Campbell calls it that rapture of being alive, you know? And that's what we want. On the pursuit of a worthy struggle, we get to experience that rapture, that awe of life, which is so rare. You know, that's why Oscar Wilde said most, uh, most people exist. Uh, it, no, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist. That is all. And it is so true. Like you see it, you don't need, I mean, it, it could not be more evident and it's, it's heartbreaking. That's why I do the work that I do. But if you want to really live, you got to open that door into some, and when you do like you're opening doors and like, you'll find darkness and both light, but you got to play on both those edges. So I think shifting your mindset and then viscerally experiencing it will inevitably will, will concretize it into the soul as something real. And then you will recognize it for the truth that it is. And you'll want to keep going there.
0: You spoke, you spoke about Carl um, Jung briefly and about your, your your kind of interchanging between the polarities between darkness and lightness where they both coexist and this is something that Carl Jung touches on immensely and I'd love to, for the um, people listening who probably aren't too aware of Carl Jung but his idea of um, incorporating the shadow and how much this is what is necessity for full embodiment as you said that, that quote where people are merely existing whereas to live is that incorporation of both the darkness and the light? So, if you hmm, could so. kind of touch on that, because you've spoken about this, and I'd want to now then go into the darkness retreat after this. But if you could sort of expound upon that point where Kao Yong has spoken yeah. so deeply about that incorporation of the shadow, and that we are so we've got such a version from the shadow and our capacities of darkness and evil and sinister to acts yet yeah, we withhold, we integrate, but we withhold, we don't act upon it. but. If you could kind of explain that concept
1: absolutely yeah you know Carl Jung put it beautifully when he said one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of flight but by making the darkness conscious and you know we've all gone through pain in life we're all going to experience trauma if you haven't yet you will at some point we'll lose people we love we go through hell we go through pain we go through that darkness we go through life's adversities and then we do everything we can to run away from it because it fucking sucks you know so we want to avoid that pain but once you sit in it, once you be with it, now you can engage that darkness, and it no—it no longer becomes something that controls you without your power. It's a tool you can access and play with, to you know, like like Carlene said, the shadow work. Like for example, uh, a few years ago, I did this run across Liberia. It was about a marathon a day for one week across the country to help raise funds to build a school. And um, on the run, I think it was like day four, I had this aching pain hit my shin. I was about 17 miles in for the day. And it just hit my shin. It took me off my feet. I tried rubbing it, massaging it. It wasn't going away. And I was like, fuck, I still got like hit 25 miles at least that day. So I started limping my way, you know, continuing on. And it wasn't going away. And I'm just battling now, not just the physical pain, but the psychological pain of like, fuck, I have a long way to go. And then something kind of takes over me. And I start jogging and then start sprinting, sprinting. And the whole time I'm saying things to myself, like, remember Neil? Neil's my buddy who died in Iraq. It should have been you that died instead of him. Suck it the fuck up. Earn this life. If you quit now, you deserve a coward's death. Look at the people around you who are suffering immensely. Liberia has gone through a, uh, a civil war, Ebola, poverty. You know, look at look at them. You have no right to complain. Suck it up. Like saying this very dark, intense shit to myself. And it's not like I always talk like that. But in this moment, because I had already engaged that darkness and brought it to the surface, it was now a weapon. It was now a weapon to use. And those five miles I ran that day were the fastest five miles I ran the entire 167 mile trip you know, so that darkness became my ally. And to this day, I mean, I still will watch scenes from war movies, knowing they will make me cry, knowing they will trigger that survivor's guilt, because there's value in going there. The darkness, the trauma, the pain that we've all experienced to some degree or another, there is value in it, right? The darkness, those demons, like, as another example, I, I did an interview once and somebody called in, they'd gone through the Boston bombing and we were trying to help her out. And I said to her, you know, next time you feel sort of the hyper vigilant because she was hyper hypervigilant, loud noises. I want you to just kind of pause and be with it for a second. And she said, well, yeah, but that's really hard. And I said, it is really hard. And it's not her fault. Like she wanted to get to the other side of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress without doing the hard thing. And I'm not like blaming her. It's understandable. It's human, but you have to face the hard thing to get to the other side of the hard thing, you know? So the darkness, the demons, they have, power. And as I always like to say, the greater your demons, the greater the divinity required to rise above them. So your darkness is what allows you to tap into the light. Your darkness is what your demons allow you to access your version of God, whatever that may be, you know, but you have to allow yourself to play in that realm as painful as it is to confront it, to be with it, to sit with it, you know, as one more example, just to share, I was working with another person who she had gone through some very horrific childhood trauma. And she, we had been, just as a caveat, when I asked her this question, she was ready to go there because this is going to sound fucked up. And I said to her, what if you deserve everything you went through, had gone through this horrific childhood sexual trauma? And she goes, whoa, now, why would you possibly say we deserve it? Everybody told her you don't deserve that shit. You're a child. You don't even deserve the sexually horrific sexual shit that happened to you. But the thing is, and I knew this was true. That's why I went to ask the question. And I said, did some part of you feel like you deserve it? She said, yes. Did some part of you feel guilty for it? She said, yes. I said, good. Explore those parts. Write down. What does that mean about God? What does that mean about humanity? What does that mean about you? What does that mean about the world? Explore that shit. Go into the darkness. Find, play in that arena for a bit. That night, she sent me a message saying, literally, fuck you, Akshay. And the next day, she had, for the first time in like 20 ever, she had shared with her husband what exactly went down, you know? So you have to go into the darkness to find the other side of it. And it's fucking hard. It's extremely hard. But as Carl Jung said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious.
0: Be with it. Confront it. Stare into it. Don't be afraid of it.
1: Or it's okay to be afraid of it. It's okay but, to well, be afraid of it. it. Yeah.
0: yeah. Or <laughs> if the fear comes up,
1: be okay with it. Exactly. Anxiety comes exactly. up, be okay with it. And it is fucking scary. I get scared to this day, dude. Like I was scared going into the darkness retreat. And some sometimes even even though I face it a lot, there's times where it's still really fucking scary. It's still really hard, you know. Uh, so it's okay to be scared of it. It's okay to be. It is challenging. Nothing about it is inherently easy.
0: Yeah, we're so fucking sold, aren't we? Actually, this idea. It's it's the idea of. Um, I think Jordan Peterson s- mentioned it in a real kind of nonchalant way and it was hilarious but the idea of happiness you on the sunset drinking a pina colada watching the sun sunset yeah. and it's like yeah and after about half an hour you're going to be drunk exactly. you're <laughs> exactly. going to need to go to the toilet
1: then what? Yeah. you're going to need to
0: go feed your cat you're going to need to yeah. go pay your bills what next yeah this, 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 this fictitious idea But essentially it's like it's okay to be scared. It's okay to have fear. It's okay to have anxiety. It's okay to feel depressed. It's okay to feel insecure. Lean into it. Lean into it. It's okay. Yeah. Learn more. Play with it. Play in that realm. Ultimately, that's what I'm hearing. Sit with that. Play with that realm. Seek support. Seek counsel if you may need. But ultimately, it's you. It's you with you.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, definitely be willing to seek support and get the right support because a lot of people like even when I went to therapists and stuff, and these were good people. They genuinely wanted to help. I commend them. But as I realized over time through my own work that their, their methodologies were deeply flawed. You know, uh, many, many people, I mean, I've had literally a therapist say there's something wrong with the way I think now. And uh, I obviously obviously disagree, but, mm-hmm. but like it's many, you have to be careful where you seek the counsel and the wisdom and the advice because it's one thing to read a book on navigating hard times of life. It's another thing to go through it. And come out on the other side. So uh, you know, so just be careful where you get that counsel. Uh, but yeah, be be willing to go there. When you do, you will find the treasures that come from battling the dragons.
0: As it stated so much in myth, you spoke about Joseph Campbell. He talks a lot yeah. about myth and archetypes, mm-hmm. confronting that warrior essentially. Yeah. Um, is it uh, go to the cave you fear? the most okay, that's where yeah. we call the most treasure
1: yeah and if you fear to seek all the treasure yeah holds the treasure you must yeah. desire something like that yeah
0: and then Carl and Young's quote um uh he whose roots um he who's he whose tree reaches the heavens roots must go to hell yeah, like yeah. that right there is just is pronounced so deeply as to what it is that you're stating now in this process and i think when people are listening to this that that understanding and getting it Maybe I'm not getting it, but ultimately it's really about staring into that fear. Like, even if it could be something as little as going to talk to that girl that you've seen on the, seen yeah. in, in, you've seen her in the public, on, on the bus every day for the last year. And you're like, oh, I'd love to. Nah. Like, literally just doing that thing, doing that yeah. one thing, kind of going back, you said, have a cold shower fucking half an hour 30 second um ice bath just that one thing that yeah. where fear is manifest so that this is what i'm getting from you actually is this fear so for the people listening that are wanting to kind of really start to go down this path it's about doing that thing where you have resistance where there's an aversion to that task
1: absolutely absolutely yeah. great. great find it seek it find a, and it could be there's multiple there's a million different ways to explore that edge but find an edge you know and go play on that
0: Mm, mm, I love it, I love it. so on that edge i want to talk about these darkness retreats actually so could you firstly just kind of lay the land what what is a darkness retreat
1: sure so a darkness retreat is where you're sitting in complete darkness where you literally cannot see your hand in front of your darkness so it's blacked out for 24 hours a day in isolation for i mean i did it the first time for seven days and the second time for 10 days so the the way that worked, like in the one I just did there, I chose to do a juice fast, you can choose to do food. But for the first eight days, I did just two juices a day. And the last two days, I did a pure fast because I wanted to add hunger to the experience as well, uh, of course. Uh, <laughs> but so twice a day, they would bring a juice in this kind of double door system, and they open the outdoor, put the juice, close it, and then you open it and grab your juice so it stays dark. And what happens when you're in that level of darkness for an extended period of time, they, they say your brain releases DMT, so your experience, which is one of the primary ingredients in ayahuasca. So you hallucinate, essentially, and you start seeing lights in the darkness that are as real as these lights in front of me right now. And what those lights will reveal to you, we all again have our own paradigm of God, the universe, whatever you want to call it. Some people say, okay, if you don't believe in God, your subconscious is speaking to you. Whatever your whatever your your paradigm and your belief system, to me, it's God speaking me to those through those lights, and the lights will reveal shapes that um, are often messages that you need to hear. And so, the meditations that I've experienced in the darkness are some of the most intense beautiful meditations I've ever experienced I mean one of them like the last one I did in the 10-day darkness it was uh, to me a conversation with God that left me bawling in tears it was incredible
0: so so why why what what compelled you to do these darkness retreats
1: the first time I went in for the seven-day one I had gone through a very very challenging divorce and uh when I went through it, I broke my sobriety. And when I do anything, I do it pretty hard. So uh, when I broke, I broke very hard. And I'm talking like drinking a bottle of vodka a day. And I didn't like that version of me. So I wanted to go deeper and find some answers. And I had done a lot of the hard physical shit. But this time, I wanted to experience stillness, you know, who we've been quoting quoting a lot. Carl Jung also says, I love Carl Jung clearly, he says, people will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid facing their own soul. Mm -hmm. And I would argue like it's one of the greatest fears, human fears is stillness. It's not, if you ask most people, what are you scared of? Nobody, it'd be very rare for somebody to say stillness, but in my experience of the human condition, it is a fear and it's hard to deny. Just look at, we do everything to distract ourselves from ourselves, right? And so I wanted to experience stillness. So the first time what drew me in was to kind of heal from some of that stuff. The second time it was more, not from a place of healing the past, but more an eye to the future because I'm training to be completely alone in Antarctica in this october where i'll be spending 110 days completely isolated in one of the most hostile environments of the planet dragging a 400 pound sled for 1700 miles so as training for solitude i went back into the darkness to spend 10 days alone and to master to continue the journey of mastering my relationship to myself and to my own mind body and spirit so that's what drew me in both the times and and the, the value of that stillness you know when you're sitting that still with yourself you're going to open doors within yourself that have never been opened before and what comes out of those doors will be both dark and light. It's going to be intensely, you know, your greatest demons and your greatest divinity will come out of those doors. And you don't know what's going to come. You cannot know what's going to come because most of us are never, I mean, no matter how self-aware you are, you don't really entirely know, right, what's going to, what's happening. And you have to face that. But that's the value. That's why I go to see what will happen. Because once again, another beautiful Carl Jung quote, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So that's why I go is to make that con- unconscious conscious and then to let, and then so I can control it instead of it controlling me.
0: How? What was the day-to-day like for you actually in that process of the first darkness retreat and the second one, they obviously would have been complete different experiences. You couldn't, you couldn't compare them. However, that first one, I imagine the first few days would have just been like, teething period you know the mind's kind of like what well, was this the reality how much resistance was there like did you want to call it quits like every single moment or was it quite like it was quite lucid and relaxed and you're you're aware of it and you're just in it you you're committed you're committed how yeah. did that look for you
1: you know, the first day and a half or so was just like sleeping. Most of us are in some degree of sleep debt. So in complete darkness with nothing to do, you're catching up on all that sleep, which was kind of cool. Like I remember waking up and being like, sweet, I don't have shit to do. There's no to-do list. I'm just going to go back to sleep. And eventually, you know, when you've caught up entirely, now you're like, I don't have shit to do. So I got, what do I do now? Uh, but there was never a moment that I wanted to quit. That wasn't even an option. Uh, uh, at this point, I'd already done a lot of hard shit, even before the first time I went in for the seven days. So that wasn't an option. It was more, I mean, there were definitely moments where I was sitting there like just bored and like fuck I still got four days left in here or something you know or still three days left in here so that you encounter but it's essentially other than when you're sleeping you're meditating and I was journaling in the dark as well so I had like a ruler and I would write and the stuff that came through in the journals were profoundly beautiful and like I remember reading my own journal later and being like holy shit like would move me to tears and not in a sort of egotistical way as like look how awesome I am it was more I don't even remember writing it it was almost like something was speaking through me, you know, and those words that I would read later in my own journal would move me to my soul and be like, damn, that's some really cool, powerful stuff. And so journaling, meditating, sometimes just sitting there in boredom, uh, and, uh, that's really your whole world in there. You know, you don't have much else to do. I mean, I chose to do a bit of exercise, but especially the first time I realized that I was doing exercise as a way to escape the stillness because I'm more comfortable doing exercise. Like that's my wheelhouse. So I was choosing to do that as a way to escape the stillness. So after about the day two or day three, I created a self-imposed rule that I'm not allowed to do exercise in the first one. In the second one, I did do a little bit more because at that point I was a little bit more comfortable with stillness. I knew I wasn't doing it just to escape. Mm. And so it's
0: amazing so so in that seven day preparation you did another 10 days so a lot of this had to do with that coming to one's your own internal stillness and acceptance of suffering and pain and all the discomforts and all the uh, thoughts that arise and it was essentially you you had the foresight to see that this was preparation for the Antarctic trip ultimately
1: Yeah. You know, I was, I had gone, I'd gone deep into studying method acting as a tool for personal transformation, which I firmly believe is one of the greatest tools for personal transformation. There is, which is, which was weird to me that you never really see it talked about. A lot of the self-help stuff is like, yeah, there's value in it, but nothing compares to method acting. So I went into the darkness to create a character, to create the version of me I need to be in order to ski across Antarctica for 110 days. And I was literally having thoughts and saying words out loud that have never said phrases before. So when you truly experience that level of stillness, you can, because when you're engaging with people, that's why every method actor, for example, like Heath Ledger and the Joker or Daniel Day-Lewis, they create time, they, they go into isolation to build their character. Because when you engage with other people, they will engage with the version of you that they know you as. And inevitably then you become that version of you in your, in, in your continued engagement with them. So isolation is demanded in order to... um build a completely new identity now as you come out of it you're going to retreat a little bit to that old version of you but you've opened a new door right and then you have the ability to keep consciously stepping into that door once you've gone there so those that opportunity to build a new version of me and speak it out loud and create it was fucking cool (laughs) like it was really really cool to literally say things say phrases and have thoughts that i've never experienced before And I've even seen with great method actors, they will think, they will dream, they will feel as their character, not as themselves, which is just so cool to me. And when you, when you, when you understand that through the lens of personal transformation, we just think about, we can all create whoever we want to be, you know, and that's what, that's what I went in there to do is to create, to create something in someone better, someone stronger some and we're constantly working to get better right i mean that's if you're not growing you're dying so if you're not if you're not seeking it you're you're dying anyway uh so it was it was a process of creation that that drew me in that second time
0: so so what happened in terms of that process of you going through that method acting that's something now that you've kind of got in your repertoire so that when you are in the pits of that deep immense fear or anxiety you're able to kind of Bring that to the surface or kind of come back to that moment of like that nah, this is this is who i am you can kind of transcend obviously the emotions that are coming up and you use that as kind of like a bit of leverage is that is that right is that fair
1: absolutely yeah it allows you to access a new places and to recognize that you do not have to be dev- defined by this thought, by this feeling you are experiencing in the moment. Like when I'm out there in the Arctic or out on these expeditions, especially like when I'm completely alone out there. I was just alone in the Arctic for 19 days, uh, 20 20 days. Um, it there's some really really hard moments, you know. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. There's some moments where I even in, I get caught up in the in the thought and feeling as real, but I'm really good at uh, not getting caught up for too long, at least if, if, and when I do get caught up and that's what the journey is, is that when, so you are doing the hard thing, whatever your version of the hard thing is, you know, either whether life punches you in the face or whether you're seeking the hard thing. And ideally both will ha- I mean, not to say ideally life will punch you in the face. That's going to happen inevitably, but ideally you're also seeking the hard thing. And so both these things you are going to experience in life, right? The ones you, the suffering you don't choose and the suffering you do choose, but when you have that ability to transcend, to create who you want to be, The suffering becomes part of the adventure of that creation. You need suffering to know strength, right? As as, as we've been fundamentally saying. But that creation of a character, like I don't like the idea you often say find yourself. It's not about finding yourself. There is no inherent self-defined. It's about creating yourself. And the whole value in method acting in the process, and great method actors talk about this, is they realize how malleable the construct of our identity is. how how fragile it is and how easily it can be released you know daniel day lewis is the greatest method actor of all time one director said of him that i've never seen anybody come as close to complete obliteration of the self as daniel day lewis so imagine that like he completely could obliterate the identity of daniel day lewis to become the character and that's why if you study him i mean god that man is a master at his craft and not just the craft of acting but the craft of releasing one identity to become another so fully And that's what, that's what it is. Then you, then you, then when a thought and feeling occurs that is not serving the person you want to be, you can transcend it. That's what it's about. It's that, okay, this is not who I want to be. This is, this, this, this is not the character I need to be to achieve X goal. So I will transcend it, right? I can transcend it. And I have the ability to, because I've trained in that arena. That's what the process of creation keeps training you to do.
0: Mm. So, backtracking a bit here actually just so we can kind of get a timeline because i think it adds to just you uh you come to the um darkness retreat you join the war um sorry in the military yep and you got out of the military you experienced ptsd you experienced nearly taking your own life you got through you went through those trenches what was that space between from there to this darkness retreat and then i want to then go on to the expeditions what was that process like? You mentioned ultra running. Could you talk a bit about that that story? Because yeah. I myself am an ultra runner and I'm like, nice. I love it. I love this. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It was that.
1: after, I mean, after joining the Marines, I got into some of this stuff. But after going through that PTSD and suicidal phase and coming out of that is what really got me into all this stuff big time. I can't remember the exact year. I mean, I, I came out of Iraq in 2008. Uh, I think it was around 2014, 15 that I was at like rock bottom, maybe around there. And then slowly climbing my way out. I can't remember exactly. I'm blurred. Past is, past doesn't exist anymore, right? It doesn't matter anymore. So I don't. I'm not very good at remembering the dates. But um, I think four or five years ago, Firvana came out. That took a long time to even write that. But uh, it was in all of that process that I like the darkness retreat was after my healing, after the PTSD and all that stuff, not before joining the Marines. Um, And then I got into big time and ultra running as one of my avenues to explore the limitlessness of the human spirit. I've run many ultras. I've done a 24-hour run, done a 50K, 50 miler, 80 miler, 72 miler. When the pandemic first hit in 2020, I did 50 miles around a cul-de-sac. So literally like a thousand loops around this little cul-de-sac. Because a lot of people were like, oh, gyms are closed, parks are closed, I can't go exercise. And I'm like... That's not true. There's always a way. So just to inspire people, I ran literally around the cul-de-sac around my house for, for like a thousand plus loops uh, for 50 miles all night. You know, So I've done a bunch of ultras more than I can count. And, uh, and then that more and more got me into polar travel as my core focus. Because out of all the things I've done from mountain climbing to ultra running to being in the Marines, nothing offers up the sheer amount of mental, physical, and spiritual suffering than polar exploration. It is by far, like as one polar explorer puts it uh, from the golden age of exploration in the 1900s, he says, polar exploration is at once the cleanest and most isolated way of having a bad time, which has been devised. And so, and I couldn't agree with more with him more. So the draw was, as weird as it may sound, was the depths of suffering that polar exploration offers. Because again, it's not, the suffering is the means, it's not the purpose, right? Because it offers so much of it, it's inevitably the rewards that much greater.
0: Mm. so you're utilizing these as tools as you said Mm -hmm. essentially kind of vehicles to get you closer to that self-awareness self-transcendence the the ultra running then led to the polar expeditions what how was it that you came across the polar expeditions in the first place
1: as i got more into outdoor sports one thing just kept leading me to another you know when i got into mountaineering uh, after first, I lived in when I first got into outdoor sports after the Marines, I lived in Austin, Texas. So I got into rock climbing. Very easy place for rock climbing. Obviously, there's no mountains. So got into rock climbing, mountain biking. That was the end what the environment offered, which like, rock climbing led me to let's what else can I climb? So then I was like ice climbing in mountains. Getting into winter sports was like, what other winter sports can I experience? You know, so that's what led me to polar travel. And at first, like when I did a one month crossing of Greenland, we're dragging 190 pound sled for 350 miles. And there was a time where, again, it's like the the challenge in polar travel is unlike mountaineering for example where if you're climbing up and down a mountain as you go up and down the mountain the environment changes your views change every day is a little different right the the day of climbing this version of this part of the mountain is different than the next version of the mountain the next part of the mountain so there's differences there's it's dynamic the environment is dynamic the climb is dynamic the terrain it forces you into flow like when I was on Denali uh, which is the tallest mountain in North America at the 16,000 foot ridge there's a thin ridge that's so thin there's another thousand foot drop on each side you know and with with that environment your the environment forces you to be fully present your mind is right there you're not thinking about all this other shit because your whole mind is that next step in front of you right because it has to be and the environment makes your mind go there in polar travel you're just skiing into empty white nothingness every day looks the fucking same and there's not a it's not a dynamic environment like on a mountain it's every day is the same every day you're doing the same monotonous grind you're skiing on a flat terrain so there's not the environment doesn't force you into flow so your mind wanders and that is extremely challenging to navigate. So there was a time where I didn't think I'd go back into it uh, after Greenland. I was like, "Fuck this, it, it sucks." But after kind of going through my own journey of all that other stuff post Greenland, like the the PTSD, the 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 uh, the, the depression and all that, it it drew me, it called me back because of that very thing, because of the monotony, because your mind wanders, because of the, 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 the relentless grind that it is because of the, the fact that every day is the single, the, the, the same damn thing. And can you navigate that? Can you fight your mind on that, that, that challenge and being in a polar storm is also one of the most savage unforgiving environments a human being can experience having experienced a great deal of hostile environments and uh it was i mean i lost a finger to frostbite in antarctica you know uh, when i was there a year and a half ago oh. so yeah i've oh, I, and, yeah i lost a lost a finger to frostbite and it's uh it's an uh, it's an unforgiving environment but well, clearly okay. i'm drawn to go back <laughs> i'll be going back there this october and you touch you touch again deeper
0: into the idea of nature that nature isn't pernicious it doesn't care it doesn't it's not trying to it's not out to get you it's just it just is and mm-hmm. through these pole expeditions what i'm hearing is it's like a direct manifestation of that reality mm-hmm. it's um, yeah it's just so hard to wrap my head around that you know <laughs> i guess for you it's all it's all kind of context right and it's all, it's all relative to where you're at to where I'm looking at you at it's just like it's just mind-boggling for people listening that probably just it's it's hard to sort of comprehend of, of what you're about to achieve and in the preparation which you've literally lost the finger in the preparation which I think is suited to what it is you're doing that there's just been this, it's just a progression. That's what I'm hearing so beautifully about your story, that it's just been this natural progression. It's, yes, you're going from one thing and like you you had that moment from the Black Hawk down to then now doing this expedition in Antarctica. It's been this beautiful process. You did not end up here in this 10-day retreat or on this expedition trip preparation overnight. You've literally had to go through all these pits, all these valleys, all mm-hmm. these peaks in this mm-hmm. in this process and for us the person listening it's easy to be like oh i'd like to do that but it's like well in order to do that we must start small start by as you touched on with that ice bath for 30 mm-hmm.
1: seconds mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm.
0: That cold shower every day or waking mm-hmm. up at 4am every single day mm-hmm. uh, what i'm so fascinated about you've you've already kind of touched on it in some sense but in, in those expeditions, those long 30-day expeditions, the one even in Greenland, was that 30 days? Did you say, is that correct?
1: 28 days.
0: 28 yes. days, yeah. So what, how did you encounter when your mind would go to just complete place? Like, did, did the mind want to quit? You, I, I can sense you didn't want to, Akshay, the observer, but where did the mind go in that process?
1: What sort of yeah.
0: self-talk came up? How did you confront those demons
1: it's very, very, that's the, the challenge of polar travel is that very nature of like, I mean, just imagine walking into white not- and there's no stimuli, right? Like it, it's, if you're walking in a hiking on a nice trail, there's different trees, the trail changes, as I said, when you're going for a hike, it's different as you move along the trail, you're walking into empty white nothingness. So there's no stimuli to engage the mind. So the mind wanders sometimes an hour can feel like a fucking lifetime, right? Like, cause we would ski and like I said, now when I'm training, I, I ski in 75 minute shifts, and then I take a quick break for food and water and to keep moving. But there's some times where that 75 minutes can feel like an eternity and your mind is like, fuck, when is this going to end? And you're like, oh, this sucks. And then you have to navigate that. You have to rein it back in. You have to bring it back in, right? You have to control it. You have to bring yourself back into the present. You have to allow yourself to find a dialogue to keep you engaged. And and navigating that mental inner battle is I mean that's life right but this, this amplifies it because it's in such an extreme circumstance with no distractions to take you away from yourself you know I mean sometimes i do use music and listen to I- uh, audiobooks and stuff like that but it still doesn't i mean another times i don't i just be with myself and the thought but even with the music and all it's not like you're you know you still have to deal with the with the, the the absence of stimuli in this very still environment and that's the that's the as challenging as that is that is the draw I mean, doing this for 10 to 12 hours a day, which I'll be doing potentially more if I need to, to cover the distance in Antarctica, it's, your mind has to be so fucking sharp. It has to be so on point. And you have to be able to be be and be the eye of the storm, literally when a storm hits, but it stays still in the face of that chaos. And that journey of finding that within myself. And it's not easy. There's moments like the low, like when you're on these expeditions, the highs are experienced of some of the highest highs I've ever experienced, but the lows are some of the lowest lows and the lows are fucking painfully low, you know, and you But that's life. Like, it becomes a microcosm for the entire human experience in this one condensed period of time. And you get to live multiple lifetimes in that, you know, because you're going through such lows, such highs, you're in this place of this mirror to the soul, which is nature, and the absence of stimuli in that pure silence, you really start to hear. Only in silence can you really start to hear. Cause now there's no distractions. There's not even just distractions of other people. There's no technology, like there's nothing. There's just, there's no stimuli. And that's when you start to hear. You start to hear yourself. You start to hear universe. You start to hear God, whatever again you want to call it. And that's that's the beauty. That's the thing. But again, you have to go through the hardship to earn your right to that. You know, that's the, that's the vehicle. That's the that's the means to get there. So far from easy. And and there's days where I fucking hate it, (laughs) where I'm like, this really, really sucks. But nothing, everything worthwhile I've done in my life from building a business to writing a book to doing all this crazy shit I do. I've had at least one moment where I'm like, to being in the Marines, where this, like, I'm like, this really, really sucks. Uh, (laughs) And uh, that's why after every expedition, I mean, I've had ultra runs where I'll come back in horrific pain or on the run. I'm like, why am I doing this? You probably experienced as an ultra runner. As soon as the run is over, I'm immediately planning the next one. You know what I mean? (laughs) So (laughs) The nature of the beast <laughs>
0: this is bizarre it's a so bizarre it really not, is
1: it? it really is <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know, so when it, when it comes to the nutrition standpoint because i want to get to that the, the granular specificity with the Antarctic trip because you went into it with such depth and the conversation of Zach I'd, i want to tap deep into that but in terms of nutrition specifically leading up to it is that going to be very much what you're going to be preparing for Antarctica or are you kind of are you in kind of a testing phase where you're just trying out different protocols different methods like what's the eating rate how often do you have electrolytes what's the water like all these factors how have you sort of kind of come to a point where you're like yeah it's sound
1: it's been a rigorous planning, the amount of the amount of planning and like going detailed scientific. I'm very blessed to have people like Zach and Dr. Mike Nelson, who was on that podcast as well, provide me counsel. But I've now got the diet nailed down uh for what I'll be doing in Antarctica. And then at home, I'm eating a very keto. Well, actually, just about to start it because I just got back from India, which Indian food is like super carb heavy. So, but when I'm here, it'll be very keto style because fats, because I'm dragging all my own food, you know, with with me on a sled. So fats are nine calories per gram. whereas proteins, and carbs are four. So fats are more weight efficient. So 73% of my diet will be fat. So at home to get my body fat adapted, I'm eating a very keto style diet to get my body fat adapted. And I have to put on weight. Like I need fat on me to go to Antarctica because I'll be eating about 6,200 calories a day, but I'll be burning eight to 10,000. So I'm going to be at a severe caloric deficit and losing weight. So I, I need weight to lose. I need a lot more fat on me to lose so I'm actually constantly, it's a really weird thing, training for polar exploration, because you need to train endurance, you need to train strength, and you need to do it all while you're fat. And none of those three things go together. you know. As you know, ultra endurance athletes are mostly focusing on endurance, not so much strength, and certainly not being fat. And you have to do all these three things. So it's a really weird dynamic training for this, this feat. But uh, the the diet has now, the Antarctic diet has now been nailed down. Because I mean, even all the foods I was looking at, you know, what's the, how many calories per hundred grams and then finding the, the heaviest calories. So like my core food, when I'm actually skiing for the 10 to 12 hours will be macadamia nuts and chocolates, you know, so macadamia nuts are a lot of fats, very, I think it's like 723 calories per hundred grams. And then chocolates are also like 600 plus to also offer a little bit of like, you, part of it, you got to take in a factor is the, uh, morale element you know of the food of as well you know and then also like I have a friend who's a supplement formula designer who created a custom supplement for me that gives me all my micronutrients and more like he's a master at his craft so he created a beast of a supplement for me that um, that I'll be taking in Antarctica as well. so I have a series of these different things and and even finding the most weight efficient food because another thing you don't think about when you're at home is you know let's say cheese for example I'm just throwing out a random number but let's say there's 20 grams worth of proteins carbs and fats in order for for that one serving, which has 20 grams of macronutrients, it might actually be 30 grams in that serving because there's a lot of water weight. Now that's highly weight inefficient. So I, any, any food that didn't have a weight efficiency ratio of at least 90% or higher, I was eliminating. So usually on smaller polar trips, I've taken things like cheese and salami, which is great, but that shit is horribly weight inefficient. So I was getting ruthlessly scientific and because I wanted to be weight conscious and find the way to get as many calories as possible in the lightest weight possible while factoring in also getting the right amount of macronutrients. So I'm taking 300 carbs, 300 grams of carbs, 150 grams protein, and I think 550 grams fat. So while hitting all my numbers, how do I get as weight efficient as possible and that get that the cow? Hour? Is that per day? No, like, that's per, per day, per day. day. Per, per, sorry, per day? Yeah, yeah, per day. yeah. Per day. Yeah, okay, so, so. What does that
0: look like? What are those foods specifically? and that?
1: So day? in morning and evening will be a freeze-dried breakfast and a freeze-dried dinner with butter powder in it uh, 40, I think it's 44. I can't remember. It's written on my Excel spreadsheet. 40 grams will be literally just drinking straight oil. Cause oil is the most weight efficient thing there is. It's literally just pure calories. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously you can't just drink entirely oil. Your digester tract will be completely fucked. Uh, so I think it's about 40 grams of oil per day. What and oil? Then, yeah. Just avocado oil, avocado kind of oil. I'll yeah. So even yeah. right now in, in the real real world, in the normal world, I just drink straight fucking oil just to get my body used to that, that doing that. It's quite, it's not, an, not entirely <laughs> pleasant, but necessary. <laughs> <laughs> and so breakfast and dinner is the freeze dried butter powder, oil, macadamia nuts and chocolates is on the go. Then I have my custom supplement that my buddies made for me. And then, um, jalapeno chips is kind of a big morale element. When I first stop at the end of the day and set up my tent. I'll be eating jalapeno chips. Is the saltiness of that is fucking heavenly? I cannot express in words how good it is to have jalapeno chips after a long ass day of skiing.
0: <laughs> wow. So that's, 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 just cycling that day after day.
1: Indeed. That's the point.
0: So, so there's the weight factor. So it's, it's, you're going to have, so you're, how, how much weight are you starting off with to begin?
1: I'm in estimating the- 400 pounds.
0: 100 pounds and obviously that'll that'll kind of sliver down as you the, yeah
1: the heaviest thing on the sled is the food the second heaviest is the fuel because you have fuel to, to for a stove in order to boil snow you're boiling snow for water and that's water not just to drink but to pour water in your freeze-dried foods as well so every day at the end of the day in the tent you'll be i'll be boiling snow uh with the stove so having fuel for that stove i carry about 200 milliliters per day of fuel um, and that is how I boil snow for water.
0: So how do you? I'm curious. When it comes to going to the toilet, like there must be a painful process to go to the toilet.
1: So going and taking a shit in a polar storm is fucking miserable. I'm oh, all about God. suffering, but that was not suffering. I enjoyed it. Goddamn, sucked. There's no two ways about it. It really fucking sucked. But thankfully, learning from wiser explorers than myself a friend that I actually just met in the Arctic, she came up with a night, she came up with, she told me that what she did when on her one of her journeys is she cut a hole in the floor of the tent and then vel- and like had one side sewn in and the other side Velcroed so you could lift the floor of the tent as a kind of flap. Okay. And then, so that way I can poop from, like, obviously when you lift the floor, now there's snow under it. So you yeah. dig a little in the snow and then that floor, that way you don't have to leave the tent. And uh, and doing that is like, I mean, I'm I'm actually going to be shipping my tent out to I think Oregon, a company who can do that because that needs to be done correctly and i got the velcro flaps and all that so that's what i'll be doing moving forward Mm -hmm. Uh, i hadn't done that before because that idea never occurred to me but uh, a new friend of mine shared that with me and i'm like that's brilliant because going out because that way you're staying in your tent because if you have to get outside and when it when the wind is i mean you're talking hurricane force winds and you have to go out in that it fucking sucks (laughs) it really sucks so
0: so what's the process for you when it comes to each day so you wake up in the morning you have your breakfast you break down the tent you walk throughout the day and in the evening so what's that timeline in terms of from the moment you're done off the day you set up your tent you prepare your water you prepare your food you prepare to go go to sleep what's that time
1: it takes about two and a half to three hours from stopping skiing to being able to get to bed and that's like if you're very efficient because you can't avoid like boiling snow takes as long as it takes. You can't really do much to speed that up. There's little things you can do, like create a heat shield and all, but there's not a whole lot you can do to speed that up. So just that time of setting up the tent, boiling the snow, you know, putting all your stuff ready, but mostly it's boiling snow that takes the, the most time in the evening ritual. And obviously the more efficient you are, because I want to be I, I want to be as quick as possible so I can get to bed and get the recovery I need to go go hard again the next day. And then usually in the morning, again, being very efficient is one hour, but it also depends because if, if you get buried by, not buried, but if you're like get hit with a storm, the next day your tent could be like half under snow. And then now you have to dig all that shit out. That takes time, which inevitably that will happen on certain days. You have to dig out your sled, dig out your tent, and then that will take time. So anywhere from one hour to two hours in the morning before from wake up to start skiing, um and then anywhere from two and a half to three and a half hours. So usually you're looking at, let's say about if you can if you can minimize may, like make ten time four hours, which is being very, very, very efficient. This is anything but skiing or sleeping. If you can if you can like make that four hours, which is my goal, that'll be ideal. But that's and again, that's being like, that all won't always happen if you have to spend half an hour digging your tent out in the morning. That's the nature of the beast, you know?
0: So, so it's looking at you're going to be getting about seven hours sleep.
1: I want to try to get eight hours. Initially I'll try to get eight hours of sleep, 12 hours of skiing, four hours of tent time is the ideal. But if I can cover that distance in less sweet, if it takes me more then I might have to, (laughs) especially towards the later parts of the journey. So that remains to be seen. What what, what, oh, yeah. what the hands will throw oh, at me? <laughs> actually,
0: it's amazing. So, in terms of um your contingencies, how do you kind of factor that into the food and the weight, the fuel, etc.? What what's your what's kind of been your your buffer? What's been your window?
1: What do you what do you mean, like
0: uh, in the sense of having conting? Say for example, the food you have, you don't like. How do I put it? So you you're you're needing more fuel, or you're needing slightly more food literally like on the day you're like hungry do you have kind of like a contingency? There is no contingency
1: no because you're carrying everything so uh, you'll see
0: you'll yeah see.
1: it's i mean I'll, I'll i will be taking a little bit of a reserves of food towards the end because you know doing 100 days is not twice as hard as 50 days it's exponentially harder because you get the cumulative effect of already having exhausted yourself i mean nothing about this is remotely good for the body right like exercise is good for the body but this is putting your body there's such insane levels of stress that it's 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 damaging obviously uh so but there's not contingencies in that sense everything is mapped out and planned out everything in that sled has i mean to to the point that i'm i'm not even taking i'll be wearing the same underwear and long johns and shirt for the entire 110 days i'm cutting tags off my shirts i'm cutting my toothbrush in half to save weight i've cut the handles off my zips on my tent and tied a string directly to the zip by just cutting the zip handles off i've saved another 40 grams so I'm, I'm like ruthless with weight cutting. So you don't really have room. I mean, like there's some things you do have redundancy is your stove. I'll be taking two stoves. because if your stove gone, your expedition's over. I have two satellite phones, two GPSs. So certain things like that, there's redundancy. But for the most part, you can't afford to have redundancy on everything.
0: Mm, yeah, of course. I imagine. Wow. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's so perplexing and uh, ad, admi- admirable. I find it just Thank so... You so so now between now and then what's your training looking like and like what's your daily routine looking like because obviously now these are like the peak kind of the ample last what four months till tool business conditions. Yeah. so how yeah. are you sort of kind of maximizing this time what does your day-to-day look like in training and preparation nutrition and sleep recovery etc yeah
1: so i just got back from india so only just starting it which by tomorrow it'll start i'm kind of to like I have to go pick up food and stuff now get into get back into my systems but essentially it'll be sleeping anywhere from 8 to 9 hours a day uh, I won't set an alarm so if my body needs 9 hours that day I'll take the 9 hours uh, cuz I want to go into antarctica as like in 100% condition not under recovered right so um, sleep once I wake up I'll be doing an hour of meditation then going out for tire dragging uh, for about 90 minutes of tire dragging and then I'll come back obviously eat some food and all that and then I'll be doing um, strength work in the middle of the day including core work with some push-ups because I want really strong triceps as well for this, the, the sled so strength work in the middle of the day doing more breath work as well and then in the evening another tire dragging session and then more meditation before I go to bed, another thirty minutes of uh, hour of meditation, because that's again you're skiing into empty white nothingness. So I want to train the stillness of mind, which is why I'll be meditating for about an hour and a half to two hours every day, and then dragging tires and strength training and uh, breath work. Is there anything else in the ritual? The ritual's written down, so uh, and then obviously eating. I mean, I'll be full time training. I'm not doing anything else but training the mind body. Oh, and then the other element that I'll be doing every day as well is going through the technical skills. So I'll be literally, I'm waiting for my sleds to get here. Once they get here, I'll be like running through as if I'm getting out of the tent in Antarctica and putting all my stuff into the sled, like literally going through the technical skills as well to make them so ingrained into my soul that as soon as I step foot in Antarctica, I'm hitting the ground running and it's part of me. So I'll be going through the technical skills as well as the physical and mental side of training. So because everything in Antarctica is hard to do, like opening zips, uh, having making sure your water bottles in the right spot, how do you eat food, I mean, like with a bag of macadamia nuts and chocolates, you can't stick your gloved hand in there to grab it because you can't grab shit with a thick glove, especially if you have mittens on. So I have a little ladle that I use to like, eat the I just take a ladle and stuff a giant amount of food in my mouth while I'm skiing, uh, or while I stop for break and then continue skiing. So all those like little technical skills of polar life and even how you set up your tent has to be done the same day every day. And I don't just mean set up the tent, but like how your inside of your tent looks. You know, my toilet bag is in the same place, my electronic bags, my sleeping bag set up, where the food lies. All of that has to be very systematized and done the same exact way. So you know where everything is, you know, and so you're moving as efficiently and smoothly as possible. You're not wasting time like, oh, shit, where's my... Where's my uh, GPS today that I forget, I don't know where I put it, you know, that everything is going to be done the exact same way. So I actually sleep in a high altitude tent that simulates uh, high altitude conditions. So my blood can become more oxygen efficient to combat the stress of high altitude, essentially. And um, uh, inside that high altitude tent, I'll be, I'm again, just starting this now that I just got back from India. I'll be replicating what my actual tent will look like in Antarctica.
0: Wow, that's all thorough and regimented. So in in, in the training specifically, like will that be uh, I'm presuming there'll be periodization periodization where you'll be reaching like a peak. Is there kind of like certain numbers specifically from the strength perspective? Any 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 data sets in that sense? Or is it merely just kind of like constant maintenance load? You're kind of in that constant maintenance load. Same for the sled dragging is, is that going to peak? You're going to have like a peak for the sled dragging like you'll have a day where you do like a four or five hour so they drag and your peak and then deload. How, how does that Yeah. You?
1: So yeah, one thing I didn't mention. The, the, what I, the ritual I mentioned was the weekdays. Weekends will be back-to-back long days. So it'll either be like a long tire session or and or a long hike. So I might do a long hike one day and a long tire session. Uh anywhere from four to six hours of endurance work on weekends. And as far as strength training, I'm using this device called a new fit a lot. It's a new fit newbie. It is a game-changing device. Uh I don't even, I can't, I, I wouldn't be able to describe the science of it. If you just Google it, it's N-E-U-F-I-T, it's i uh, I'm using that for strength training. It is like, it's, it, it destroys you, but it is far more. I mean, what you can do with that, you cannot do in the gym. Uh, it's a game changing device uh, that one of my much smarter friends than me exposed me to. And so uh, I've been using that for my strength work. And then I have a lot of my friends, I'm very blessed, are, Brilliant at their craft and personal training. So once a week I go tomorrow, I shall be going to see my friend. And he has a kind of ritual that he's come up with me for doing like ATG split squats, uh, doing Nordic curls, things like that.
0: So, in terms of the actual setup itself, actually so you're on skis, you got a sled. How's that set? How's the rig set up? What's what's that? Is it like a harness like wrapped around your yep. chest, your whole upper? It's core? like kind
1: of a full body harness that clips into the sled
0: little carabiners i imagine that are connected to the and you're literally pulling that with with trekking sticks ice ice sticks
1: yeah on on backcountry cross-country skis yeah Yeah. wow so
0: could you um so could you then um break down exactly what it is you're actually doing in this entire journey
1: because yeah so i'll be dragging that 400 pound sled for uh 10 to 12 hours if not more a day to cover uh, 1700 miles and become and once accomplished it'll be the first ever coast to coast crossing of Antarctica without any outs like without outside support or without any um, purely human power so no no dogs no kites uh to to drag this for 110 days completely alone where I'll geographically be the most isolated human being on the entire planet for parts of that journey in one of the most hostile unforgiving and savage environments on the planet temperatures will drop to minus 40 and below with wind chill um and i'll be 110 days completely alone out there going through this journey and once i pull it off it'll be the first ever crossing of the continent it'll be the longest solo journey in human history both in terms of distance and time
0: it's it's phenomenal actually it's so inspiring too uh and that this is kind of a big reason why i wanted to talk to you it's like it's one thing to um do these extreme feats of endurance but it's another thing to explore and go deep into the ultimately fundamentally is going into that fear the fear that you must be feeling people are probably quick to project oh you're you're crazy or oh you're obviously like signing a death wish it's like nah you've just reached this point in your journey where you, this this is your precedent now for you to kind of go deeper into that self actualization your reality of who you are as akshay on this journey and this is this is now where you need to be mm-hmm. and it's just admirable mm-hmm. and Yeah. Is there a way that people can, um, is there going to be any form of tracking, GPS tracking? Yeah,
1: there'll be a a live tracker um, where people kind of follow me along across the ice. So as we get closer to October, that'll be ready. Um, And uh, yeah, people will be able to follow follow along. I'll be sending audio updates from out there every day in the tent, just like a quick audio update of how the day went and it'll be all on this live tracker across Antarctica.
0: Yeah, I'm going to make sure to definitely add um, links to that for people to be following through. I want to um talk a bit about um your book, Akshay, because you've touched upon much of what um is in that in that book but how how did that kind of come about in this journey for you? because that in itself is its own deep, dark trench of writing a book what you have yeah yeah, very, to very challenging
1: about. writing a book for yeah. sure one of the more challenging things I've done among every other one. but it's I mean, it was after my own healing journey of hitting that rock bottom, you know to share the lessons I've learned along the way because as I said, they were again good people but much of the methodologies I had discovered in my own healing journey that people were operating from were deeply flawed. So to share my own lessons that I'd learned. And I mean, again, I spent years researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, doing my own inner work and to share that with others. That's what led me to fear We donate all the profits to charity. So the book is entirely just an act of giving and service. I don't make money off it. It's just to help others, not just through the content, but through the donations of what we raise as well. Um, And, uh, help other people everybody's battling their own version of a polar storm everybody's going through dark gone through or will going through and will go through darkness and so to help people combat that darkness is what led to me choosing to write the book and uh share some of my wisdom that i've been blessed to receive through this life experience
0: amazing how can people um, find that book
1: so fearvana is on amazon uh on audible kindle paperback any any version And as I said, all the profits we donate to charity, we've supported former child soldiers to survivors of sex trafficking, to building a school in West Africa and many other causes like that. Yeah, well, sir,
0: we've we've covered so much and there's so much that can be extrapolated from this conversation. I'm going to listen back to this and there's going to be so much that will come out. Um, It's sort of hard to um, really just articulate the, 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 what what you're what it is that you're about to do and the journey you're about to go on and I um yeah I admire you I commend you and I'm gonna be on this side of the world be cheering you on as I kind of go through my own I think in October I'll be I'll be running an ultra in October so when Some I'm in the house, I'm gonna be like yeah man I'm with you archer yeah. brother <laughs> I'll be brother. sending That's out good. those vibes. Uh, but yeah, actually, I really, I honestly do. I truly appreciate you taking this time and um, taking the time for the audience too. I think this is going to be immensely valuable. People are going to be freaking out at this. Um, so I want to kind of end Thank with you. a question. You you already kind of said it, but again, for the people who are on the edge of their seat, are motivated to listen to this conversation. They want to kind of start going down that path of fearvana. Reaching that nirvana and understanding and reaching into that fear, amalgamating the two. How can people take that first step to begin that journey for themselves?
1: Go do something really hard right now. Go do 100 fucking burpees. Go take a cold shower. Go like, Don't wait. As soon as you hear this, go do it. Take action. I cannot stress this enough. Belief is built on the battlefield. Belief is built on the battlefield. Confidence is the result of action, not the fuel for action. Don't wait. Don't wait to, uh, uh, you know, like exercise is one of the best tools because again, physical, physical challenges exercise, both the mind, body and spirit. So do, do, come up with like 100 burpees. If you can't do 100, do 10, do one, like wherever your edge is, find that. And you should, it should scare you, the thing you come up with, right? It should be like, this is going to fucking suck. If you're not thinking that you're not aiming high, high enough, right? Like for me, if I had to say, I go do five burpees, I would not be scared right now because it's within my comfort zone, right? If I said go do 100, that would really suck still. 100 burpees always sucks, uh, no matter how fit you are. So, but do something like that, like that, you know, come up with a go, go take a cold tub, go take a cold shower, do 100 burpees, go run, 10 miles if, if 10 miles is way outside your thing go do two miles if 10 miles is easy go run 20 miles go do fucking something that is going to be like fuck this really sucks i don't want to go do it and go to war with yourself and in that war with yourself you will find a level of peace that you haven't found before
0: amazing thank you Akshay.
1: absolutely brother. You,
0: brother pleasure uh, man anything anything um on my end that you'd need and support and pushing the message I'll be doing all of it on my end. I'm gonna push the book, push obviously you and what you're doing. I'll be pushing all the links when that once that starts. Any support you need in any way it's in my capacity, I'll be
1: doing I that. I appreciate that
0: book. Thank yeah, you. I really, I really appreciate this and um I appreciate your service too. And yeah, thank you for the inspiration, Akshay. I'm sure people are gonna be fucking itching to go out we're in winter now in new zealand and this side of the world so people awesome. have been going out going out for a Ride
1: night go do a cold river dip in the cold it's a beautiful yeah. thing
0: <laughs> now. amazing well awesome, I brother. You, yeah, and i guess we'll be in touch yeah. i'd love to just yes, more and, yeah, explore more
1: sounds good sounds good man we'll Thank be in touch much. Cool. much love take care love. see ya
0: bye how did we go how the fuck was that conversation guys Man, Akshay, that dude, I just... Every time he was talking, I just had to refrain from stopping myself from saying, Dude, you are a fucking savage. The way that he's able to so clearly and eloquently convey his reasoning, he's able to break down and explain as to where and why he's come to this place he's in now, this place in his life, how he's managed to get to the point in his timeline and how he's stepping forward on this journey and his reasonings. They seem very grounded and stable, yet for the layperson, you would think he's signing a death wish. However, upon listening to conversation again, you hear that Akshay is very considered. He's really breaking down and analyzing the circumstances is analyzing the risk he's laid it all out and I guess all we can do as listeners and if you wish to support us yeah tune into him find out more explore his website explore his page show support I'll add this all in the show links but I think this man's going to do something that is historical and I think all all we can do is support him in any way possible and i think yeah us even just sharing this episode and getting the word out there because yeah he's literally about to do something groundbreaking um i hope you really enjoyed the conversation i did i was just so wrapped he was willing to talk with me and i'm just so wrapped to be able to share it with all of you and if you've listened this far i thank you and appreciate you and I would ask for just one thing, if you wish to support the show in any way, any way, your rating and review would be the best help for me. The push show up the rankings and get these amazing humans like Akshay the exposure they deserve. This would be very much appreciated, and it's only if you have the time, but I would honor that and I would, yeah, it would, it would help, it would just really help the conversation conversations that i'm going to be having coming forward moving forward um as yeah they're going to get deeper they're going to get better and as you probably can hear i'm probably getting better maybe not who knows i don't know i'm just doing these i'm going to keep doing these and the more you show up and the more support you show it's going to make it easier for myself to keep showing up and sharing these amazing human beings anyway thank you for listening this far appreciate you sending big love and we will speak on the next one peace and love